I I wasn't trying to solicit a a hello to me. Hey, um, every week we receive an offering and it's, 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 you know, we, we talk about how it's our continued worship and it's our, it's our, you know, giving to God what he's given to us. I want to let you know that part of where some of that money goes is we are part of the Russia partnership and that's kind of our missions to the greater part of the world, um, and what that means is that we are partnered in, in locked arms with about seven or eight churches, vineyard churches throughout the U.S., and we are committed to supporting vineyard churches that are in Russia. And there's about eight or nine vineyard churches in Russia, and, uh, and so part of that commitment is financial, and so we, we monthly give, set aside some money to give to the partnership, and the partnership then um, sends it off to the churches as needed, and and there's some you know structured um, ways that we support the pastors and that sort of thing. Um, but the other w- part is that we are committed to going to Russia, and so July there's a team going that I'll, I'll be leading, and and if you want to go to Russia in July with me, talk with me. Um, but right now there's a team on the ground that left on on Friday, and they're they're in Siberia, uh, uh, far east Russia, and uh, they're they're holding a conference for all the pastors and leaders of the five Russian churches in Siberia, as well as there's some, some finished work on one of the churches, uh, construction type stuff that's going to be wrapped up. So um, just be praying for that team, that God would use them as they, as they partner with the, the vineyard churches in Russia to bring God's kingdom to the Russian people. Cool? Let me just pray for them real quick. And then I want you to pray for them also through the week as they're there. Father, would you just go before them be with the team, safety travels, Lord, um, relationally, God, that they would just uh, integrate well and quickly with the, with the vineyard uh, churches there, and the relationships would just continue as they've been built, and God, would you just bring your kingdom to, to Russia, to the people of Russia, um, and show your love to them, amen. So in, in 1741... There was this preacher named Jonathan Edwards. Anybody ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? I knew Jack would hear, have heard of Jonathan Edwards. But Jonathan Edwards was this preacher, and he preached a message that said something like, all humans are sinners, and God's an angry God, and you better get your act together, or else you're going to hell. And he preached this message. It became a famous message. It was called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And there's books that have been written about it. There's, there's um, I wouldn't say parodies, but adjustments to that title that, of books that have been written. But this was a, a fiery message that he preached. He, he, he took his time to describe hell so vividly that it was said that the hearers of the message could smell the sulfur of the burning hell. Like, he, he described it so vividly with an effort to See people recognize how much they were sinners and come into relationship with Jesus. And this is a time um, and a message that was also credited with kicking off a style of preaching that most of us may have heard of called hellfire and brimstone preaching. Has anybody ever heard of this style of preaching? Yeah, how many of you really love this style of preaching? Not very, not any hands. Okay, good. I'm going to talk bad about it for a few minutes. Um, 
So, so this style of preaching emphasizes our sin and the surety of our road to hell unless we repent. And even growing up as a, as a, a small child or, you know, junior elementary school, junior high, there was a term that was used and it was called turn or burn. Anybody ever heard that statement? Turn or burn. And the idea is if you don't turn from your wicked ways, you are going to burn in hell. And at the time, this preaching tactic resonated with the people. They, they caught on, and many people were saved. And I want to say that, that Jonathan Edwards' message was, was covered in God's grace and God's mercy. It, we, we need to be fair to the fact that his message, while he described hell and, and used this, this style of preaching, his specific message was really covered with but God's a gracious God and God's a merciful God. Now, the problem with the hellfire and brimstone um, preaching tactic was that I think as time went on, the grace and mercy part left and it was just the turn and burn part that remained. And my concern with that style of, of preaching and probably why I don't, can't, or, or don't want to preach that style is that because when a person gets saved as a result of being afraid of God's heavy hand of judgment that is going to rain down on them unless they turn, I think it instills a fear that God is watching and waiting and expecting you to mess up so he can crush you. And I think it instills a picture of a God who is distant and a picture of a God who is, who is, who is gruff and mean and just an angry old man. And this kind of mindset also, I wonder if it instills a picture of a God that we have to please and a God that we have to work for, for his love. Does that make sense? As a result of this mindset, I wonder if we're inclined to then turn around and share that kind of God with the world. Or maybe worse yet, because of our fear of failure, to be, of being crushed, we don't share Jesus at all. Now we're called to share the good news. This kind of, of message is not very good news in my mind. The message that you're bad, you're going to hell, you're going to burn. I don't know that that's the message that Jesus intended us to share, the, the gospel, the good news. And I have a theory that we don't share Jesus with others because we ourselves have missed the point of the good news of the gospel. We've missed the point that the narrative, what did you say, Jack? <laughs> yeah, maybe. But we've missed the point that this book, the Bible, is God's narrative. His, his overarching story of this is to restore back what he created. So we, when, when we read in Genesis, God created, created the world, created us. And what did he say about that? It was good. Mara's heard this before, so she knows the answers. Now, sin happened. And what do we say about sin? Bad. She knows we're running short on time, so she's speeding me up. <laughs> and that God's complete plan of redemption is to restore back his creation to himself. This story is good news. And this story is wrapped in God's love 
for all his creation. Not a story of a mad, ticked-off God racing around trying to grab back what sin has stole. Stole. But a story of love. Now, here's the, here's the reality. Sin is real. Right? Here's another reality and another problem. Death is real. And there's another reality that we read about in the Bible. Hell is real. Now, however you picture hell, what you think hell looks like, here's what I think I can absolutely say about hell. Hell is 100% the removal of any of God's grace or mercy on our lives. So, so whether you think you go to, to the deeps of the earth, whether you think you're annihilated, whether you, whether, whatever your definition of hell is, it's God completely removing his hand off your life. And we could dive into that another time, but just picture the worst of the worst of the worst situation in our world right now. God's hand of grace and God's hand of mercy is still hovering over that situation. The worst situation you could fathom that's happening in our world. Picture God going, it's done. And that's hell and that's reality and that's separation from a a, a God who created us and loves us. But here's what I wonder. I wonder if we change the story and move from the narrative of God, of a God full of wrath and judgment, to a narrative of a God that's complete character of love is the driving force behind everything he does. What would be different about us? How would we view our relationship with God? How would we view God? And most importantly, how would we share the gospel with the people in our lives that need to hear about God's love? Would it change? And if it would, and if any of this sounds like makes any sense, here's my big idea that I want us to walk away with this morning. My big idea is that when I fully understand God's unconditional love for me, I will be compelled to love others. And Paul deals with this, and he, he rolls it out in, in Ephesians. And, and I just want to dive into that, and we're going to start with the hellfire part because that's the fun part, because Paul started with that in Ephesians 2. So if you have your Bible, go to Ephesians 2, and he starts with, the, with this, this scripture that basically the point I pulled out of it is that we were all walking dead. And here's the scripture that Paul says. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world, He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, anger, just like everyone else. So here's the bad news of, of what sin is. We are dead. We are separated. And we have an inclination because of the world we're born into. We have a bent towards sin. We we are walking dead people before we meet Jesus. Now here's, we talked about sin is bad, right? But here's the reality of sin. Sin equals death. We need to get this, okay? Sin equals death. It's not just bad things we do. Sin's not just against God and not being perfect. Sin equals death. And because of the sin that we are born into in this world, we are dead people before we meet Jesus. And Paul is talking about this. Now, the good news of this, this passage is Paul's talking past tense. He's talking to the church, and he's saying, you were, you were, you were this way. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, the same is true for you. You were dead, but you're alive. But nobody escapes this reality. Here's where I want to go with this. We can go two different ways with this, these verses of walking dead and, and death. We can go the hellfire way. And the hellfire way says this. The hellfire way, after reading these verses, would, would say something like, if you aren't a Christ follower, then you are doomed for hell. And it's hot in hell. And then to be, bring an illustration, the guy would pull out, uh, some, grab somebody's hand and pull out a Bic lighter and light it and say, do you feel the, the heat off this fire because this is just a little taste of what's going to happen to you because you're doomed for hell? And do you feel your skin starting to burn and starting to melt? Now, f- now figure out what that would feel like for all eternity. Screaming, gnashing of teeth. Because you were wrong and God was angry and he flicked you into a burning fire. Paul didn't do that. Paul chose the love route in this scripture. Paul paints out the problem of us being dead in our sin and dead because of sin. And I think he does it probably because of the, the testimony of his life. Because he recognized how dead he was and his, his journey to meeting Jesus and the path where Jesus met him and the transformation that happened to him and the love he received from God when he met God. And he chooses this love route and he takes the route with the church and he says that God is love. God is an, love is an attribute of God and it can't be separated because God is love. It's not, it's not tacked onto the God that we worship. It's not, it's not a part of that, that he earned. It's it is him. It is, God is love. And so when we talk about God's love, Paul moves on and says, because God is love, he gives life. And so moving on in, in chapter two, verse four, Paul says, but God, let me tell you something about but God. If you ever get any bad news or read any bad news and then the next two words are but God, get ready for some good stuff. And, and, and so Paul's given some bad news about the, the depravity of our heart and, the, and the, the, the results of that is death. But he says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who were united with Jesus. That's the good news. That's the good news that we need to know. The greatest love that God gives is life to us. He takes what is dead, we sing about it, and he performs a miracle and turns death into life. So if you're a follower of Jesus here today, God raised you from the dead. Spiritually, he took what is dead and he raised you to life. And he gives us a life that surpasses our physical bodies, which is good news for some of us, but he gives us a life that's eternal, Here's what I wonder if we can begin to wrap our minds around is our physical bodies are just a shell of an eternal person and maybe when our physical bodies finally give out and we are in the presence of God, that's when life really starts to happen. It's just a thought I've had.
So on top of the life he gives, God then uses us as an example of, of raising from the dead to point back to future generations. Look at what I did with those people. They were dead, and I raised them to life. And as we move forward, look at what I did with those people. And God keeps pointing back in time as a, as a testimony of his love for people. So God loves us. He gives life. And then Paul digs a bit deeper, and he says that God's love is a gift. And we know this verse. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So no one can boast about it. Here's what this is saying. You cannot work for your salvation. The flip side is that because of your salvation, you choose to work for God. We can't work to earn our salvation, but we can work for God because of our salvation. And we talk about this, but I wonder when we have in our mind this idea that God's this angry God who's waiting to crush me when I do something wrong, if we click ourselves into a working mindset to earn God's love. Here's, here's, what, here's what our culture is. Our culture is a guilt and innocence culture. Okay, I met with, um, we had some missionary friends that came and stayed the night at our house a couple months ago. They've been uh, 18 years in Tajikistan, and they're home for just a, a year or so because they have adult kids that are getting married and kids that are graduating high school and heading off to college, so they're home just to kind of sort that stuff out. And we got into this conversation about how different cultures receive the gospel. And, and he says, you know, in America, we're guilt and innocence. He says, in Tajikistan, where, I'm, where I've been for 18 years uh, with the Muslim people, they're shame and honor. So, so if you shame somebody, they, they work to bring honor to themselves. In Russia, they, they work off of a fear and power system because of you know, countries that have been steeped in communism with dictators. It's all about fear and power. For us, it's guilt and innocence. And we use a lot of like courtroom-type language in our society, don't we? And even in our gospel sharing, we use courtroom-type language of God being the judge and we being guilty. And maybe in the past that's worked, but our problem is that today, in the natural, we don't trust that system. We don't trust it. Why? Because judges can be paid off and cops are bad. Brandon Allen wanted me to tell you, cops are bad, firemen are good. He corrected me after first service. Cops are bad. Firemen are good. Judges can be paid off. Lawyers are money hungry. And that has affected, if we view it this way, if we, we, if we think God's a judge, it affects us that way. God's a bad ju- ju- judge. He's not just. God can be paid off. I can work for him. And we play, play this cat and mouse game in our world. I can speed as long as I don't get caught. Somebody once told me, no, no cop, no stop. I saw somebody from our church run a stop sign, and I text him like, hey, dude, I just watched you blow that stop sign. No cop, no stop was his response to me. <laughs> he's not here right now, so he's okay. Maybe he'll hear the message. Um, I need to get back on this track. Looking at God as the judge through our lenses of a corrupt and broken system, might start to have us believe that we can keep doing to stay in proper position with our salvation, but it's false. God's salvation is a gift, and that's what Paul's driving home here. Now, here's the challenge. 
The challenge is to shift our mindset from a God is an angry God looking to judge me and crush me and I must keep my P's and Q's to a mindset that God's got a love for me and he wants to be in a relationship with me. He wants to be intimate with me and he wants to make right all his creation because it was good and everything he does is out of a heart of love to have an intimate relationship with his creation. And when we land on this, then we move into what Paul finishes with and what God get, God's love gives us. It gives us a purpose. So Paul finishes with verse 10 and he says, we are God's masterpiece and he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Loving others, sharing God's love with others stops being a duty It stops being a responsibility. It stops being something that we feel like we have to do to stay in right relationship with him. And it starts being a passion. And maybe that passion starts with us outing ourselves that we are Christians. Maybe it just starts with with letting the people around us know that we're followers of Jesus. Next door, there's a gym called Haymaker CrossFit. I said it wrong again. CrossFit Haymaker. Um... And the people, it's kind of cultish next door. Um, I know this because I'm a part of that cult. Um, But the people that go there are fanatical about what takes place in that gym. And, And you know how you know if somebody goes there? They tell you about it. That's how you know if somebody does CrossFit, is they tell you about it. There's a guy, I don't see him right now. There he is. He's wearing a CrossFit sweater in here today. You just recognize I was talking to him. But people who do CrossFit out themselves often. You can't not sit in a room with somebody who does CrossFit and last very long before they tell you that they do CrossFit. Because they're passionate about it. Because they, they love the community that takes place. They love, they love the physical activity that takes place. And they love to tell people about what's happening with them through participating in this thing called CrossFit. And they love to invite people into that community. Now, do we love telling people about what's happening with our relationship with God? Do we love telling people how it can change your life and how it's how, what you were created to be and it's what, what God has in plan for you? And do we out ourselves to people and say, I'm a Christian and it's awesome and it's, I'm passionate about it and you should join too. You should enter into this relationship also. Do we do that? And, and I wonder if we don't because we're scared. Because God's mad. And he's going to get us. God poured out his wrath on that cross and, and poured out love to us. Do we get that? Stand up with me. Like I talked about last week, Easter is coming It's another week closer, and the challenge last week was to start praying for somebody in your life that needs to meet Jesus. And so I hope you've done that. I hope that that God brought to mind somebody in your life who who you recognize um, maybe needs to come into relationship with him, maybe maybe would would benefit from from his love, and you've started conversations with that person. You've started... um, just praying for that person and finding ways to engage with that person. I want to continue to encourage you to do that. Here's what I want you to do as a result of of the scriptures today is I want you to ask yourself this question, how do I respond to God's love? 
Do you recognize God's love as, as being poured out for you and honest and pure and all life-giving? Or do you recognize God as a God who's an angry God, who's a mean old guy in the sky? And I want to encourage you to start asking God to, to show you his love in a way that's, that's real. Why don't we close our eyes? And why don't you just simply ask God a question? Just in your heart, just say, God, would you show me your love? And maybe right now as you've prayed that, God has, has, has responded to you. God's, God's moved in your heart. You have, you have felt his love come, come over and consume you. Maybe he, you've heard him say something to you. And I want you just to, to hold on to that because that's a truth that he's given you about his heart for you. And then ask yourself, how am I going to respond to that love that God has for me? Next question to ask ourselves is, what does God's love compel me to do? Do I get excited about it? Does, does it compel me to want to tell others? And then the final question, which ties in with our Easter, Easter challenge, is who am I showing God's love to? Am I taking this life-giving love that I've received... And has it compelled me to love others? If you'd be committed to asking and answering these three questions this week, I wonder what would change in your heart. I wonder what what God would do, what God would speak to you, what God would show you. We're going to enter into 